Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. As a historical figure, Napoleon Bonaparte is simply larger than life. Despite beginning as a small part of the French Revolution, he managed to overshadow even that era through intelligence, brutality, and charisma. More than ever, on HI 101, I really need to stress that this discussion is an overview and can't hope to cover every facet of one of the most complex and fascinating periods of history. That being said, Let's just start with the timeline of Napoleon's military and political conquests, and we'll go from there. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HI 101. I'm here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And Colin, first off, I would like to say thank you very much for choosing Napoleon, because it has shown me the theoretical limits of what I can do in the HI 101 format in terms of including content, in terms of covering everything I feel like needs to be covered. You're making me feel like I wasn't anywhere near specific enough. I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been doing a lot of reading the last uh, week and a half, two weeks to, to get ready for this, and even then I barely feel ready. So I always kind of knew there were certain things I wouldn't be able to do. You know, there's never going to be a World War II show. Right. You know what I mean? Can't happen. There might be a certain aspect of World War II. Sure. Maybe we can talk about, well, I don't know, uh, espionage within World War II or maybe, I don't know, Pacific naval battles or something like that. But that's about as much as I can fit in there. But this is one man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Only one man. How hard could it be? Yeah. And another part of the reason that I kind of... Uh, underestimated this was when I was going to school Napoleon tended to be kind of glossed over a little bit and I always kind of assumed that it was sort of because it was easy to encapsulate and sort of put off to one side as a footnote but it turns out that the reason all of these teachers were glossing over it was because I probably should have taken the entirely nothing but Napoleon course that I I didn't actually take at some point they were glossing over because they didn't know what else to do with them. Well, and most people, I think myself included, see him as something of a caricature of the person that he actually is. He's very popular in all kinds of media. And the thing I find really interesting about that is that nobody seems to know why. I mean, the context for Napoleon seems a little bit lacking. It seems that people know that Napoleon was a French guy, that he had a bit of a bit of a, a, an expansionistic outlook on life, you could say. And that ultimately he was he was defeated. I mean, beyond that, 
really, what sort of picture do they have of Napoleon, right? Well, this is the thing. I, I travel a fair bit. Mm. And in my travels, I'm not like a history guy. It's one of the reasons I'm on the show. Sure. But you come across a lot of history when you're visiting tourist sites. Mm-hmm. And he is everywhere. Yep, he went a lot of places. <laughs> there are stories about him to be told all over Europe. Mm. I mean, he he essentially he was in power for 15 years and he didn't squander them. He he very much used that time to its full ex, fullest extent. And I mean, he he did plenty of things before he was in power as well, but uh there there was very little of Europe that didn't have some sort of uh, wasn't touched by Napoleon in some way. So with all of that in mind, I figure we might as well just kind of jump right into everything. We'll do... There's there's sort of two... I decided to divide it up into two main aspects. Everything to do with the sort of military expansionist type stuff that everyone thinks of with Napoleon, and then everything else. So we'll start with all the expansionist stuff that everybody knows kind of about, get that out of the way, and then we'll move over to some of the slightly more long-lasting stuff, but maybe not quite as well-known stuff. So. Sounds good. Napoleon. Napoleon Bonaparte, born on the island of Corsica, one year after it was transferred from Italy to France. So was part of an Italian family, as his name's actually been made French. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the Italian version of it, but it, it's, it's, a, it's an Italian name. He grew up speaking Italian. Actually, his French was quite poor. He was never all that good at writing it. Hang on. Uh-huh. He's Italian. Well, I mean, his his family is Italian. He is technically a French citizen. He was born in 1769. In 1768, the island of Corsica was transferred from Italian possession to French possession. So he just snuck under the wire. Wow. So, I mean, he had an older brother who was born an Italian citizen. Right. And we're keeping in mind here that this is a time when, like, Italy wasn't actually a thing. Like, there, there was no country of Italy. Italy wasn't made until... Quite a bit later, okay. but Corsica was an Italian uh, was an Italian state. His family weren't exactly commoners, but they weren't really ruling Corsica either. They were kind of middle class. They were wealthy enough to kind of send him away to school, and he was an incredibly bright student, very good at math, especially, and ended up finding himself at a military school um, and was given the rank of lieutenant by the time he was sixteen. Which sounds crazy, but I mean, this is a time when you had people making cadet at 12, 14, things like that, right? Like, okay. it's not it's not quite as outrageous as it maybe, maybe sounds at first blush. He wasn't necessarily a, a prodigy, he just, that was a thing that happened back then? Exactly. And he was quite competent. It's not that he didn't deserve it, but uh, but he was quite quite young when he made uh, officer in the, in the French army, specifically in the artillery corps. Uh, that math kind of went to, to good use with... Uh, with, with the way that people were citing cannons at that point in time, which was very manual. Very, very manual. We don't really need to go over, over all his early exploits. Mostly it was fighting for the French army in, uh, in Italy. There were campaigns against Italian states by the French army. And the thing to remember is that four years after he made lieutenant, when he was, when he was 20 years old, 1789, the French Revolution broke out. This is another thing that we're just going to gloss right over because we don't have time for it. All stuff I don't know that much about, but that's okay. Key points here are that the French crown went completely broke. The people revolted. The French king was overthrown, Louis XVI, and eventually beheaded. 
a Republican government was set up. And basically everything after that Republican government was set up turned into this giant infighting squabbling, right? So the problem after the revolution was that anything that was old, that was linked to the uh, the king, was considered extremely undesirable. And so everyone was trying to kind of out-revolutionize each other. And so basically anytime you wanted to get rid of someone, you just linked them with something that happened two years before that when there was a king and said, listen, you were obviously supporting the royalists at that point in time. And all of a sudden the guillotine rolls out and heads are coming off left, right, and center. It just became this like red card that you could just pull out on somebody? Pretty much. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the terror. No. 1793 in France was not a great year to be in France. Okay. It's just it's just bad news. Well, uh, with a name like the terror... I made some assumptions. Uh huh. But that's how I'm glad you clarified. Napoleon himself was, as I said, stationed in Italy, but he, he was smart enough to sort of see which way the wind was blowing and when the revolution started, distance himself from the royal family as much as possible. The military was a really fickle thing at that point in time. They changed allegiances an awful lot, and Napoleon was kind of savvy enough to pick correctly each time that happened. So. Did he really identify himself with France or more with Italy? Because it sounds like he really could have gone either way. He, allied... I mean, I know which way he went. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I think, I think ultimately Napoleon was loyal to himself. Right. In terms of his identity, he was raised in the French system, and the French system is everything that gave him all the opportunities in his life, but. Something that we'll talk about a little bit later uh, is that he was fairly flexible on stuff like that. Uh, one quote that kind of comes to mind was that on the on the subject of religion, he wasn't a particularly religious man himself, but he he basically noted one time that if he was to conquer a Jewish state, then he would be the first man to rebuild the the Temple of Solomon. He's he's, he's kind of saying that whatever will get him ahead will that he will he will do. I feel like with the success that he had, you almost have to have that kind of attitude. Yes, he was he was extremely ambitious, extremely ruthless. Now, the interesting thing about Napoleon... Well, I mean, there's, I say that like there's only one thing. The one thing. Here it comes. <laughs> this is what we're here for. Come on. <laughs> wow, this is going to be anticlimactic. <laughs> um, one of the interesting things about Napoleon, though, is that he probably wouldn't have made it that far up the chain of command had it not been during the revolution, because... One thing that the terror kind of bred was really quick promotion within the military because top guys were constantly being executed for political reasons. So he was at a startup company with high turnover. He made general very quickly. <laughs> like, really quickly. Yeah. He was brigadier general by 1796, which is kind of like a one-star general. Right. And I mean, there's there were plenty of generals at that point in time, but I mean... You know, he was under 30 and a general. That's pretty impressive. I'm impressed. And I, I mean, if it hadn't been for that turnover, he may have taken a lot longer to get to a higher position of power. Another thing that kind of came out of the French Revolution was that the rest of Europe decided to fight France over it. The thing to understand about the French Revolution was that it was the first time an established European power had been overthrown so completely that it represented a complete break from the old order. And thus a threat. Basically to the rest of Europe. Absolutely, because 
after the French Revolution, the power didn't lie with the sovereign monarch. The sovereignty lay with the people, with the country. Even, you know, there was a short time when the, the old king of France was still king, question mark, where he basically had to change his title from king of France to king of the French. And it seems like a really small designation, but or a small difference. But what it signifies is that he's not... He's not ruling over the country anymore. He is merely the king of those people and that he he rules because of the will of those people. Right. I know, it's it's a little bit tricky. It's a little finicky. It seems like... It does seem like a minor distinction to me. And yet to these people, it was everything. Yeah. It was yeah. absolutely crucial. Well, you have all these other monarchs across the rest of Europe that are going, oh no, that king was ruling by divine right. He was apparently appointed by God to be king, and the people didn't care. Just like me. <laughs> I say I'm appointed by God. I've been, you know, my entire family line for generations upon generations for hundreds of years has been ruling on this pretext. If that's not sacred in France, which was one of the most religious countries in Europe, if that's not sacred in France, I'm, I'm potentially at great risk. So the rest of Europe was really interested in getting the king of France back on the throne. Or once he was executed, someone from his line. Someone from his line, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So they went to war with France and they figured, you know, France is in turmoil right now. Uh, they're, They're switching governments. They don't even really know what their government is right now. They're still figuring all of that out. Their economic state isn't all that great. Let's just let's just stamp this out while we still can. And France did a surprisingly good job of pushing back all of these threats. That's part of what Napoleon was doing in in Italy, was this sort of uh, fighting these counter-revolutionary forces, keeping them out of France by pushing them further back into Italy. One of their biggest opponents at this point in time was Britain, which is interesting in a couple of ways. The biggest one being that by, by this point, Britain's a constitutional monarchy, so they don't have quite as much vested in the in the old guard. Britain's been a constitutional monarchy for hundreds of years. And otherwise, like, the English and the French love each other. (laughs) Yeah, they've always had a great, great relationship. Why all the hostility? I don't understand. The upside for the British, if we could kind of put the French in line, was that, I mean, beginning, you know, we're talking at around 1800 right now. Britain's on the up and up. They're just coming into their own. This is the golden age of Britain. And they're thinking, you know what, if we can knock France down a few pegs, we're going to be the best country in Europe. And, I mean, France was the biggest country in Europe at this point. We've got Spain, who had been on the decline for a couple hundred years economically. We have Portugal, who is basically a vassal of Spain. We have the Holy Roman Empire, which someday would be Germany, but was incredibly fractured, bloated, old Italy, kind of the same deal, a bunch of small city-states. Russia, who is like 50 years behind the rest of Europe. France is it. There's the Ottoman Empire. They've been going for hundreds of years. And same thing, just choked by bureaucracy and tradition. Yeah. France is where it's at. If they can take France out, Britain's sitting pretty. Plus, France is geographically closest to them. They don't have to go very far. There is that. So, another, another campaign that... Uh, Napoleon was involved in directly before he took supreme power was in Egypt. He went to Egypt and fought the British there. The British had uh, significant holdings in in Egypt. The reason for that is that uh, India was already under British control at this point. 
There is no Suez Canal. However, it is fairly cheap to sail stuff up, you know, uh, the, the Red Sea and have people take goods from India by baggage train, basically across to the Mediterranean. It's easier to do that than sail all the way around South of Africa. So holding Egypt was as strategically important then as it is now with the canals. It was just a slower process. Right, right. They were hoping to choke Britain off economically by taking Egypt and forcing them to sail all the way around. Right. Now, the Egypt campaign didn't go well for Napoleon. It is kind of cool. I don't have time to get into it, but there was a Battle of the Sphinx, which is kind of awesome, even That's though it wasn't that close to the pyramids, really. Just a great name. There was a, uh, there was a naval battle on the Nile. Uh, that was the big defeat for France. Have you ever heard of Admiral Horatio Nelson? No. What a great name, eh? That's a fantastic name. Admiral Horatio Nelson, hero of the Royal Navy, sailed in, whooped the British Navy, and sailed back away. At this point in time, all the gains that uh, Napoleon had made in Italy were kind of they, they were kind of negating themselves. Italy was pushing back and actually starting towards France. And even though he didn't have specific orders, Napoleon decided to go back to uh, to take his entire division back to France to help defend France proper, and kind of got there just in time that people hadn't really heard how badly things had gone in Egypt. He got there in time to make himself important there that the defeats didn't really hurt his reputation too badly. So he's not even doing that well early on. Well, he did well in Italy. Yeah. Egypt, not not so great. Okay. But really, he's he's kind of testing his chops at this point. He's also doing a couple of other small things. Like He's very involved politically. He starts a couple of newspapers at this point in time. And he's very involved in like what's going on back at home. Because there's been a couple of switches in in leadership back in France and he's doing his best to stay on the inside with with those leaders as much as possible. Right. In 1799 the directory who was kind of the, the the leadership of France was I mean they were ineffective, they're corrupt, they were basically falling apart, they were bankrupt and uh, a man named uh, Saez, he was he was an abbot actually originally, but also a very prolific political thinker decided he was going to overthrow the directory. Napoleon caught wind of this, was like, let me help you out with this coup, managed to kind of like weasel his way in. And Saez, who had written this really like influential work called uh, What is the Third Estate back when the revolution was first starting. So really well known, really influential, kind of got hoodwinked into when he was rewriting this new constitution for the France that would emerge after this, this coup that they were working on. Napoleon kind of managed to write himself in in a very crucial role, which was that of first consul. Consul is a term uh, taken from Roman leadership, and we're going to see a bunch of that. If there's a theme that's kind of showing up in this show in general, it's that everyone wants to be Rome. But he he makes himself first consul, and when this new... uh, when they they overthrow the, the directory successfully, basically Napoleon steps forward as the new leader of 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 France. What they did was they overthrew them, then presented this constitution for approval and had the people vote on this constitution. By voting on the constitution, they were tacitly kind of confirming Napoleon as leader because if they confirm the constitution, it's a package deal. Napoleon comes with it. First part of the constitution, Napoleon is in charge. <laughs> and originally, the way it's conceived, the consul is something that's going to turn over um, between people over the years. Right. The Constitution is called Constitution of the Year 8 because they 
had restarted their calendar at the revolution. We're going to see a lot of stuff like that. The revolution was silly. <laughs> um, the constitution was approved with 99.94% approval rating. Uh, now, I feel like there must be a slight margin of error there. Nope. Everybody loved it. Wow. When you see numbers like that, you know something happened. Yeah. So we'll just let that figure speak for itself. We'll, yeah. just, let, we'll just let it sit. It's just going to hang out there. And basically his first act as, as consul was in 1800 to cross the Alps into Italy and, and start pushing back that same territory that he had originally started out on, basically. That's where that, uh, well, right over here, no one can see it, this is audio, but uh, the famous painting of him crossing the Alps, that's where that comes from, uh, is, is when he took this army across into, into Italy and, and very quickly wiped out uh, a large portion of, of northern Italy and made it French territory. He also starts pushing, as soon as he's done with, with, uh, with Italy, he starts pushing against Austria or the, the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire included Austria at this point in time. I know it's kind of all really confusing. This is the first time I get to see this. If you want more information, I have a show on this already. Nice. Go check out the formation of Germany. <laughs> You'll learn a lot more about what was going on here in the Holy Roman Empire. Absolutely. Next, he starts pushing against the Holy Roman Empire. He spends several years uh, fighting against them. Quick sidebar. Yeah. Was that the Habsburgs? Yes. Okay. Yes, the Habsburgs. No, nice. That's perfect. The Habsburgs were, at this point, the Holy Roman Empire, Holy Roman Emperor was a Habsburg. So he held the throne of Vienna, Austria, which is the seat of the Holy Roman Empire, which in turn rules all of these tiny Germanic states. And it all gets really convoluted. Anyways, in 1802, there's a there's a, a a small ceasefire, if you want to call it that. It's it's um, there there's a treaty between Britain and France. Basically, both of them were a little bit exhausted. War takes a lot out of a country in terms of economy, in terms of manpower. It's just hard work. Neither side did a great job of keeping the terms of their treaty, though. Britain didn't pull out of Malta like they said that they would. France started meddling in Switzerland. There was this unification in Switzerland that they said they wouldn't get involved in because that's Holy Roman Emperor territory. They had their fingers crossed the whole time. Pretty much. I think, I mean, when this treaty was formed, I think everyone knew that it wasn't going to stand. I don't think they realized how short a time it was going to stand because basically it lasted the winter. 1803, war is once again declared by Britain. There's all of these coalitions that's, that are formed and they're, they're numbered as, as they go. Essentially all the time, it's Britain plus a couple of allies fighting against France. So all of these coalitions keep getting made. And France is still Napoleon at this time? France is very much Napoleon. In fact, in 1804, there's an assassination attempt against Napoleon that's uncovered. One thing that Napoleon started doing fairly early on is really developing uh, an intelligence network. And he had this guy who's actually really fascinating in his own right. He, he, he used to be a bishop, but his name was uh, Talleyrand. I don't know if you've ever heard the name. Probably not. He was like the f- 19th century French Kissinger. He was like okay. this weird realpolitik statesman that was constantly the power behind the throne, but never really a power himself. Right. Um, some people will say that he was like the greatest politician that ever lived. Other people will brand him a traitor. Often the consensus kind of comes down to Talleyrand was loyal to 
himself first and Talleyrand was loyal to France no matter what form France happened to be taking at that point in time. When it was still a royalist, Talleyrand was loyal to the king. When it was the revolution, he was loyal to the revolution. And when Napoleon was taking power, he was loyal to Napoleon. He's a really interesting guy and he stuck around for a long time before and after Napoleon. Well, and you said that a lot of people who, you know, supported the royalty were kind of tossed out, but not him. Not him. He was, he was very astute. He's very intelligent. So Talleyrand comes forward with this, this plot and basically says, you need to use this to your advantage. Napoleon says, great. What I'm going to do is I am going to propose that I be made uh, emperor. Now, in 1802, he had already been made consul for life. So rather than that whole, you know, changing over consulate that we had been talking about before, that one was again 99.8% of the vote or something like that. They said, you know what, Napoleon, you do such a great job, you just stick around. And this is in the midst of all this fighting against the Holy Roman Emperor Empire, so he used that to his advantage to get this to get this set. Now he's making himself emperor, and the thinking behind this is that if he makes it hereditary, because he already has a son at this point, if he, if he or, as well as a brother, uh, if he makes it hereditary, then the Bourbons are going to stop trying to, the, the Bourbons being the, the French royal family, they're going to stop trying to assassinate him because if they assassinate him, it will just make him a martyr and power will automatically go to one of his family members anyways. So he can just declare himself an emperor and then all of a sudden it's just like the royalty. His family line is suddenly... No, but there's a difference because he put it to a vote and 99.93% of the, the, the population de- declared him emperor. They, they unanimously proclaimed him emperor okay. of their own volition. He went to the people. He is ruling by the will of the people. This is a population that very recently overthrew something very similar to this. Absolutely. So nobody was suspicious of this? Well, there's a number of things. First off... You've just been through the terror where you don't really speak up because speaking up is how you get your head cut off. Okay. Secondly, go ahead and try to prove voter fraud in 1804. (laughs) Yeah, okay. That's fair. Third, Napoleon was winning wars. He was turning around the economy. He was keeping France safe. He appeared to be a really, really competent ruler. Back in Rome, before, you know, when we're talking Roman Republic, so before the empire, before Julius Caesar, the position of dictator wasn't, there was, there was no pejorative associations with the word dictator. A dictator was when one of the leaders of Rome was handed unusually broad powers in a state of emergency with the understanding that when the emergency was over, he would hand those powers back. I've heard this before, Julius Caesar just didn't hand them back. But there had been two dictators before him who had done so. Okay. They had only needed those powers handed back twice. So Napoleon is trying to kind of portray himself as that sort of dictator. He's not even calling himself a dictator, obviously, but he's saying, this is different. The people are giving me this power. And the, the people probably saw that this was fishy, but they're also thinking, you know, uh, they're, they're also thinking in the way that those people who voted the, the classical dictators in were thinking, which is that we need someone who is better than us to look after us and we need to not bog them down in the, the 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 machinery of government we need to give them as many tools as possible to get the job done because still britain wants to 
take out France. Still, the Holy Roman Empire is looking to take them out. Still, you know, the, 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 the Italians aren't entirely subdued. There's a lot of threats out there, and they're going, well, he seems to be keeping us safe. Okay. But once he's emperor, no? Okay, because that's, that's different from the, the God-given right. I was going to say, once he's emperor, won't they just be less scared for themselves? When, when Augustus Caesar proclaimed himself, he, he never proclaimed himself emperor. He called himself uh, first citizen. That was the title that he took. He said that all citizens are equal. I just happen to be the first among them in acknowledgement that his peers had asked for his his leadership, his guidance. Marketing. Absolutely. It's 100% marketing. Absolutely it is. But that's really important in a situation like this, right? Yeah. You can't just go taking hereditary eternal control of a, com- a country <laughs> without some knowledge of your, your appearance. Right. right? And, and he's, he's been very careful about this. So he's using... When he became first first consul for life, he was using the threat of the Holy Roman Empire to basically say, I'll look after you. When he becomes emperor, he's going, this is the only way we can keep the royalists from taking, like seizing France and negating everything that you and your family and your brothers have fought for in the revolution. Because if they take it back, it'll be as though the last 15 years have never taken place. And what have they fought for? What have they died for? What about all the rights that you guys have gained over the last... So He had some strong arguments. He had some very strong arguments. He also happens to be a very ambitious man and i i mean it's it's really difficult to say how much of this would have happened had circumstances been different the the what if game is we don't play the what if game in in history that doesn't work it doesn't work we don't go there yeah because there's there's too many factors when you start tweaking factors there's so many other factors that you might as well change while we're at it it's got to be it's got to be immutable what happened happened, and that's the only way. Sure, and it's it's kind of, it can be fun to talk about over beers with some friends, but when we're talking history, we'll just stay away from the speculation because it's it, it doesn't work well. Fair enough. When crowned emperor, he actually had the Pope come and crown him in Notre Dame Cathedral for, legit, for legitimacy. There had been some very tense relations with the Catholic Church say, over the revolution. Willing to do that? In 1801, he, he kind of repaired some of the relations with Pius VII and he had him there but ultimately Pius didn't actually put the crown on his head Uh, they decided for the sake of the ceremony to have Napoleon place the crown on his own head signifying that he was there by the will of the people and not by the will of the church you get into a lot of really touchy really subtle things going on in this whole dynamic Mm -hmm. but the important thing is now he is basically everything that the revolution started to stop you know He's he's kind of a king. He's he's a voted king, but he is a king. Yes, voted. Well, yeah, in in the most giant scare quotes. In 1805, he was also crowned king of Italy, so that was neat for him. Add that to his trophy room. <laughs> yep, and uh, that also coincidentally saw the start of the third coalition, which was. Uh, basically Britain, Russia, and Austria. They were all fighting against Napoleon. And here is where you get the Battle of Trafalgar. You've heard of that one? Mm-hmm. Also Horatio Nelson, by the way. Ah. The French figured this is their best shot at taking out Britain. They're going to land some troops on British soil. They're going to march straight to London. They're going to put an end to all of this nonsense. Ambitious. A joint Spanish-British fleet stopped the French fleet in the, uh, in the English Channel. Horatio Nelson at the helm. He died during this battle. You know, I, I don't know a ton about Horatio Nelson. I, mo- I know a little bit more than we're talking about here. 
there's something about Horatio Nelson, probably mostly his name, that makes me not want to know any more about him. I prefer to just know that there was a British admiral named Horatio Nelson, and he was spectacular. The only reason he died was because a French sharpshooter shot him out of a crow's nest. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, his ship didn't even go down. Well, it was sad for him. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it goes sometimes. Yeah. Good guys don't always win. <laughs> but basically, at that point, the the hope of ever really invading England was, was over. Yeah. The, the French Navy never really had another chance at it. However, that same... That same year, Napoleon fought a battle at a place called Austerlitz. This is one that I, again, talked about in the uh, in the Germany episode. This he considered his greatest victory. There were 67,000 French troops. There were 73,000 allies. So, fairly close, all things considered. And I mean, the other thing to consider is that numbers, estimates, vary quite a bit. Right. Uh, they, they can go all over the place. Austerlitz is fairly accurate. Some of them range by tens of thousands of men. The French troops took about 13% casualties. Now, casualties is, is killed, injured, or captured. 13%. Somewhat high. The Allies, the, the coalition forces, took over 37%. Whoa! It essentially ended the Holy Roman Empire. The uh, the emperor Francis II abdicates the the throne of the Holy Roman Empire, takes the throne as emperor of Austria instead. So basically, just moves his battle lines back, leaving all these German states essentially on their own, undefended, mm-hmm. open for the taking. Which Napoleon just takes, consolidates into a much smaller number of states, and calls the Confederation of the Rhine and makes a protectorate of France. This is where the Arc de Triomphe comes from. He had the Arc de Triomphe commemorated for this battle. That's how proud he was of it. So, how instrumental was he personally in this fight? He commanded personally. <laughs> That's the thing about, about Napoleon. It was He was not afraid to get on his horse and ride out to battle to, to command his generals from there. Uh, he was a very hands-on commander. Right. I mean, he couldn't be everywhere all the time, but he, he was, he he was, was at Austerlitz. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, you got to give him that much. He, he was not afraid to get on the horse and go. Now, shortly after this, there was a fourth co- coalition, 1806. Really all that happened here was the French won a bunch more territory. That's, <laughs> we're, we're just going to glaze right over that. As soon as it was done, something called the, the Continental System was put into place. He basically realized that he wasn't going to defeat Britain through warfare. Because the channel is way too locked down, the British, uh, the I, 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 I'll put the actual quote in the notes. But the the British naval commander at the time said something along the lines to to British Parliament said something along the lines of uh, I can't promise that the French won't come, but I will promise that they won't be coming by sea. The British Navy, I feel like I've heard, was quite something. They were, they were something else. And it's a great line because how else do you get by get to Britain? No, it's true. Fantastic! Mm-hmm. They've got like this massive natural moat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the thing is, that's also a huge vulnerability to Britain because the British Isles themselves aren't really all that rich in natural resources, and they were importing a lot of stuff from the continent. Mm. Remember that you know ten years before this, Napoleon was trying to choke them off at Egypt, as far out as Egypt. So you know, long before that. Uh, 
what Napoleon's done now is he's essentially taken mm, the the western half of Europe. But at this point, Britain's allies must be everybody that's not France. Uh not quite because I mean the the the, the German Confederation is a French ally, Spain, French ally. Italy either French territory or French allies. Okay. Austria is an enemy. Russia doesn't quite know what to do. They've been enemies in these coalitions, but been beaten soundly. Who else do you turn to? Yeah. Uh, let me think. Let me think. <laughs> Netherlands. I believe they would be uh, part of the, the German coalition at this point. Damn. I tried. Yep. Belgium was French territory. I mean, like, it, it, he had... He had Europe locked down. So basically he said, okay, everything that's French territory and everyone that is a an ally of, of France. Actually, I may have misspoken. By 1807, uh, they had signed, uh, uh, France had signed a treaty with Russia as well. So they were technically a, an ally, albeit uh, an uneasy one. We're talking about Alexander I at this point in time in, in Russia. He was actually good buds with Napoleon. They got along really well, just like personally. They were drinking buddies? Yeah, you know, they'd do a little fox hunting, a little, you know, like they were, they liked hanging out. They liked each other, which is, I, I don't know, you don't hear enough of that kind of thing yeah. in, in, in world politics, especially in wartime. You don't, you don't hear a lot of that kind of thing. He basically said, anyone that's allied with us, don't trade with Britain. Lock it down. Lock them down completely. He put a complete trade embargo on Britain. And for a long time, it looked like Britain was going to be in a lot of trouble over this. The continental system was actually quite effective. But unfortunately, it actually exposed one of the weakest points in Europe as a vulnerability and kind of started the inroads that would lead to the eventual contraction of French territory. But we'll get to that right after this break. Hey, guys. If you feel like you're not getting enough HI 101 in your lives, well, that's because these shows take a long time to make, what with trying to get all my facts straight for you and such. That being said, if you're looking for something to do between episodes, I do have another podcast that my brother, sister, and I put out every single Wednesday called Truth Bombs. It's not really anything like HI 101, more of a sort of structured comedy show, but I am one third of what's happening over there, so if you like HI 101, you already like a third of that cast. There's a link on the website, or you can go to truthbombs.ca or subscribe straight from iTunes. It's not really history-based, but I'd be really happy if you took a look anyway. Thanks. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we were just talking about the continental system by which France was trying to sort of choke off trade with Britain on every single front they could. Obviously, it wasn't 100% effective. There was a huge spike in smuggling at this point in time. Pirates. Sure. Well, I mean more smugglers than specifically pirates. But yeah. Uh, yeah. but yeah, uh, there, there was quite a bit of flow of goods across the channel, uh, despite all the work that the, the Royal Navy tried to do to kind of settle it down. Ultimately, the Royal Navy was still in control of the channel for basically the rest of the war. So they could only do so much, except patrol their own shores, and that's a lot of shore. Like, you can't have boats on it 24-7. Yeah, that's massive. Yep. You also saw a little bit of trade from uh, Britain across to its Atlantic colonies, so stuff that's still left over in the Caribbean and things like that, as well as North American colonies. Not that they could provide a, a ton of stuff, but at least it was something. There was one 
problem in the continental Europe that was that showed up here, though, which was that Portugal wasn't interested in playing ball. Portugal is a really small state, but they just didn't feel like joining in on the continental system. They made a lot of money off of trading with Britain. <laughs> Hold on, hang on. Did, uh, did Napoleon know about this? Oh, he knew. Oh, he knew. Why did he not put a, a thorough and brutal stop to it? Well, funny you should mention that. <laughs> because very shortly after they started trading with Britain again, he invaded Portugal. In the process, rolled through Spain. Kind of kicked the king off for good measure and installed his brother Joseph on the throne of Spain. But they were allies. I mean, allies, enemies. What's the difference? What's the difference? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that simple. Uh, basically, what, I, what really happened there was... I got the order a little bit mixed up. What happened was, as soon as Portugal started seeing trouble, Britain was like, oh, a foothold on the continent. Perfect. They dumped all the forces they could into Portugal to defend them. Napoleon went... Uh, this could be trouble, and I don't completely trust the king of Spain at the moment. I'm going to put my brother in charge. Right, so yeah, I don't trust Spain to defend Spain. So here, I'll take Spain and defend it. To be fair, Spain didn't have a great track record of defending itself. Well, like you said, they were in decline. Well in decline at this point in time, yeah. Joseph was incredibly unpopular in Spain. People did not like him. Not one bit. Was he uh, not a great dude? He was no Napoleon. Mm. Um... I mean, I, I don't know a ton about Joseph as a person. He wasn't inept, but he also had no real business being there, and they knew it, and he knew it, which isn't a great setup, really. Yeah. Joseph was, he was very capable, he was very intelligent. He was not really someone to be conquering an enemy nation. It wasn't quite his style. But he was loyal to Napoleon. Oh, absolutely. So there you go. Very much so. Two things happen here. Number one, as soon as Joseph goes on the throne, Spain stops even pretending to be allies with France. And a brand new sort of warfare springs up that's never really been seen before. And uh, they they call it the Little War. In Spanish, guerrilla. In which citizens of Spain would organize and, you know, through the day, they would go about their day-to-day business. And at night, they would... They would form small raiding parties against French soldiers who would be stationed throughout the area, hit them fast and hard, and then fade away as quickly as possible. And then they're just citizens again. Mm-hmm. Huh. And that, that's where that word came from? That's where the word comes from. Whoa. Meanwhile, an enormous British force has landed in Portugal, and they are pushing as hard as they can. Uh, at, at, in the early stages, under the command of a General, uh, the Duke of Wellington... I don't know if you, listen, if you know this guy. Uh, the name is quite familiar. Yeah. He, he was a very capable leader. He had been fighting campaigns in, in uh, um, India for, for years before this. And he was known to be impatient and he was known to be bold. But he was also known for inspiring incredible loyalty among his men and knowing when to hit hard. Duke, so Duke is not a military title. No, but at this point in time, officer commissions and noble status well social status kind of go hand in hand okay especially in britain i mean among the french army basically if you were good at being a soldier you would rise through the ranks and if you had the training to be an officer you would be an officer in britain we were still under kind of a a very outdated system in which you essentially had to purchase commissions so you had to you had to buy your way up in rank that seems like a terrible system 
it wasn't the greatest system. Fortunately, every once in a while you get a guy like the Duke of Wellington, who is actually a capable commander as well as noble-born. That is good, because, like, rich does not necessarily equal... Not not to defend the, the system, but the only thing I can say about it is that at least rich should equal a good education. Yeah, yeah. That's, okay. that's about... That, that would be the justification that someone from uh, the year 1800 in England would give you. Yep. That and probably something about a certain type of person. But, you know, that's... Yeah. that's yeah, let's not go on to that. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll stay out of that. Yeah. <laughs> the Peninsular War is, is what they called that because, I mean, it's the Iberian Peninsula. Everything... Uh, everything south of the Pyrenees is the, the Iberian Peninsula, so they call it that segment, the Peninsular War. That would last the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. It was a massive thorn in Napoleon's side. He hated the thing. He considered it one of the main reasons for his downfall. A lot of historians wouldn't consider it that, but, I mean, it, it bothered him. It really irked him that he had given up that, you know, that he had once owned all of Europe, and then and then Spain started creeping back towards, you know, real France, because... Just the other side of those mountains is real France. And this is after he had just spent all of this, this time and effort establishing sort of a safety belt of the, uh, the, the Confederation of the Rhine. So that even if he took some losses, he still wouldn't actually be losing any France. Did he think he had Portugal locked down? Like what? I didn't think that Portugal would be much of an issue. Yeah. He didn't expect the British to mobilize as quickly as they did. There were a couple of times where he underestimated the Royal Navy. I mean, it, it happens. Not everyone is the perfect leader. And we, we do know how this story turns out. So yeah. so while that's all going on in, in Spain, you also get a, another coalition. We're up to the Fifth Coalition now in 1809. Basically, it was an attempt at a second British front in Europe. They were trying to get in basically the north of Belgium kind of thing. As soon as possible, Napoleon sent forces up to basically block off their access and in the in the process managed to defeat defeat Austrian forces to I mean there's there's several separate battles that I'm just you know we're we're just glossing right over because we don't have time to get in all of it. Yeah. I can't stress that enough. Fighting all over the place. Yeah, he, he managed to stop Britain from landing in the north as well as defeating Austria in the east and ended up Divorcing his his current wife, Josephine, who you may have heard of, we didn't talk about her at all, divorced her and married the um, the Archduchess Mary Louise, who is the daughter of the Emperor Francis II. And of course, this relationship was for love. This relationship was incredibly political for two reasons. First of all, he hadn't had a son yet with Josephine. And, you know, as they do back in the day, they're looking for the, the male heirs. Mm-hmm. And And secondly, to basically be like, I got family over here. Maybe you don't want to get too uppity. Yeah, man, political marriages are weird. There's Napoleon being all strategic again. Yep. This is essentially the height of the, the, the Napoleonic Empire, the, the, the first French empire. They've got most stuff locked down. I mean, they've got the Peninsular War, but honestly, if the Peninsular War was all that was going on, they'd probably be okay. Unfortunately, what happens is that despite the personal friendship he has with Alexander in uh, of Russia, uh, Russia was being hurt really badly by the continental system. They did some pretty good trade with, with Britain back in the day. And his, his noble advisors were basically telling him, listen, we can't keep this up. And eventually he kind of caved to their pressure and were you know by by 1811 started trading with with britain again his 
ministers also told him, you know, Napoleon's probably going to be really mad about this. He might invade. We might want to start thinking about bumping up our military a little bit. Okay. Why, why wouldn't they just trade with Napoleon instead? Because the economy on the continent was also depressing at this point in time. I mean, no one was doing well out of this trade, this trade issue. It's just that Napoleon figured that the losses that the continent was taking economically were far more tolerable than the losses that Britain was taking. And he would be more or less right as long as everyone's stuck on the continental system. Yeah. So they were trading with France, but Russia felt that it wasn't enough. They wanted to get back in on on the, the British trade. And I mean, Britain was... You know, Britain is a small nation, but at this point, we're already talking about a, a trade network that stretches over the entire world. You want to be part of that if you can. Right, because at this point, they're still in control of a lot of other places in the world. Yep. North America, Caribbean, India, tons of tiny islands that no one has ever heard of, places in Africa, South Africa, uh, all over the place. So they built up this little army. Napoleon was mad that they were breaking the, poly- the, the, the continental system. He starts building La Grande Armée, the biggest army he's ever built. I saw numbers anywhere between 450,000 men and 600,000 men. Jeez. Now, Russia was actually planning on pushing into what now is essentially Poland and taking territory there, taking it back. And pretty much before they had a chance, in June of 1812, Napoleon invades Russia. A lot of people will point to this as a bad idea. But I mean, at the time, there was nothing that really screamed bad idea. Russia wasn't, uh, they, they, were, they were powerful militarily, but they were also, you know, economically not doing that great. They were technologically a little bit behind the rest of uh, Europe. Okay, but Russia's massive. Yes, and empty. Yeah, okay. Russia so if you has invade Russia. You can do so very strategically. Russia has historically had trouble with leveraging its natural resources. There has been a lot of time where it's not that they don't have the resources or the manpower. I mean, they have manpower in spades, but they were also under uh, a serfdom system for like hundreds of years longer than the rest of Europe. They were just. I don't like using the term socially backwards, but it's as good a it's as good a, a shorthand as I have for what I'm trying to express here without spending ten minutes on it. They they were they were lagging behind everybody else in a lot of metrics. Fair enough. So it didn't seem like the worst idea in the world. It is notable that this is the point in time at which Talleyrand started distancing himself from Napoleon. Oh boy. That's a bad sign. It's a bad sign, but I mean when you're the guy that Talleyrand was with and then Talleyrand starts distancing himself from you, you don't think to yourself, what am I doing wrong? You think to yourself, well, guess Talleyrand's got it wrong this time. Right. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's not something you really consider that much. Are you saying that after all of this, he had an ego? <laughs> Napoleon? No. <laughs> Basically, Russia did the one thing that Napoleon wasn't prepared for, which was not fight. They decided, we're not going to bother. Anybody who was anybody headed east. They just left. Peasants tended to kind of stick around in the same areas, but they left and they burned everything behind them. Scorched earth policy? This is... Russia Russia runs on scorched earth policy in war. They just left and burned everything. Literally in most cases. 
See, here's here's the interesting thing about the way Napoleon did conquest with his armies. Normally with conquest, what you need to do is establish lines of supply, which is essentially a way of getting necessities like, say, food to your troops. And normally lines of supply stretch all the way back to wherever you're coming from. Napoleon was very keen on each segment of his army being able to sustain itself. They put a lot of emphasis on essentially essentially pillaging, but they pretty much figured why uh, sustain supply lines when you can just raid the local granary and feed your men that way. But if there's no local granary... Bingo. It's a bit of a problem. All of a sudden, the French army doesn't quite know how to deal with this. All of a sudden, all these men, between 450,000 and 600,000, some of them are having to be sent back to start maintaining supply lines, which they're really not happy about. They don't want to have to do this. But otherwise, they're going to starve. So it seems like a ridiculous strategy, but very effective. Yeah, in a lot of cases, yeah. Because it, 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 gives, it gives the enemy nothing. And Russia is massive. I, it's 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 hard to put into words how huge Russia is. Russia spans eleven time zones. You said it was hard, but I think, I think you did a great job. I, I mean, that's <laughs> that's one of the more meaningful metrics that, that that I've read. Yeah, it's big. You you can do a lot of running away and still be in Russia. We'll just burn this part of Russia. We still have plenty of Russia left to spare. Pretty much. Yeah. Over the course of several months. Napoleon, with his forces, is advancing into Russia and encountering almost no resistance. They're not taking any prisoners of, or making any slaves of the serfs or anything like that because they feel like that could be problematic for their supply line. They don't want anyone harassing their supply lines. So they just basically leave everything be. They just keep pushing further and further into Russia. Finally, they get to a city called Smolensk. There's a, there's a small battle there. But again, the, 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 army keeps fall, the Russian army keeps falling back and falling back until basically they can't fall back any further. Napoleon is essentially at Moscow. There is a massive battle. Um, it's called the Battle of Bordino. Sorry, Borodino, which is a, a small town that's close enough to Moscow that, you know, the battle there is protecting Moscow. You know, the, the, as I said before, the numbers on battles like these are just all over the place. Essentially what happened was... There was between 130,000 and 190,000 French involved in this specific battle, between 120 and 160,000 Russians. The French took between 30 and 35,000 casualties. The Russians took between 40 and 45. So we're talking essentially 75,000 casualties. Yeah. The thing about Borodino as well is that because of the supply lines, the French could barely feed healthy, active troops that could look after themselves. I'm so, wondering how they even got this far with the Scorchers. Tactics. Very tenuously. If you were injured at Borodino, you were probably going to die. It was almost certain. So this is one case so where... Casualties pretty much means uh, fatalities for them. Just about. Yeah. Yeah. So technically, France wins this battle. It's a French victory? Winners. This is what's known as a Pyrrhic victory. It basically, it just means that, uh, a battle at which victory comes at too high a cost. What does he say it was... His buddy, Alexander. Yeah, I don't think they're on speaking terms at this point. You mad, bro? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a French victory. Yeah. And the governor of Moscow says, okay, set the city on fire. 
Moscow. They burned Moscow. Oh, jeez. So <laughs> then they just left. The, the 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 Russian army pulled back further east yet, and the French basically sat in Moscow. They regrouped in Moscow, waiting for somebody to come and take Moscow back, and no one did. And they sat there for a good month and basically said, we can't sit here anymore. We're dying because we have no food. And they left. They started retreating. And the entire time they retreated, all of those Russian peasants that they left alone, they were harassing the survivors, killing tons of them. Tons of them. Then winter came along. Napoleon wasn't expecting to be there during the winter. Winter came early. They didn't have winter gear. But, but Russian winters are so mild. It's colloquially known as general winter because it's often so effective in helping Russians win battles. <laughs> I like that. It's good. Now, how, how, how important the Russian winter was to the specific battle is kind of up for debate. It was a factor. Uh, it was a factor. Personally, my opinion is that they were hosed no matter what, but that didn't help. But that's 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 just me. There there are some people who will say that if it wasn't for that winter, Napoleon would have been able to regroup and come back and take out. Again, we're getting yeah, into specula- speculation. Yeah. yeah. So they they left. Again, numbers are finicky, but less than fifty thousand French troops actually got back to France. This is out of the 130 to 190. No, that's only the forces that fought at Borodino. Remember, he set out with anywhere between 450,000 and 600,000. This was the... The Grand Army had less than 50,000 people left. That stings. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. The spring, right after that long march back, there was another coalition. (laughs) Who would have guessed? (laughs) The six. The Sixth Coalition, yep, involved Russia, uh, involved Britain, of course, involved uh, Prussia, who we haven't talked about too much, but they were sort of, they were kind of part of the Coalition of the Rhine, but somewhat independent, see Germany podcast, but had basically been playing neutral up until this point. They decided, okay, we can choose a side now. Austria decided, you know what, we're not going to play nice anymore. Sweden Spain and Portugal, who were already fighting Napoleon, so it wasn't that hard to join in. Pretty much everybody. Pretty much everybody. They all joined in on the Sixth Coalition. They're like, you're weak and we've had enough? Yeah, pretty much. There's a giant battle called the the Battle of Le- uh, Leipzig in October of 1813. You know, and it's funny, for, for a lot of the summer, spring and summer of 1813, Napoleon actually does surprisingly well against the Sixth Coalition. By the time he gets back, he's got about... 200,000 troops that he manages to kind of muster and and just sort of barely hold them back. And he does okay for a while. But then there's this Battle of Leipzig, which, if you go by the number of combatants in the battle, was the largest battle up until World War I. About 600,000 people took part on each or on, on both, both sides combined. Jeez. Or all sides combined, I should say. There's a lot of different com- countries in there. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Both sides took... Heavy losses, but it was a decisive loss for Napoleon. He was pushed back basically all the way to to the Rhine, the Rhine River, which uh, traditionally separates France and Germany. Strangely enough, at this point, he was offered fairly reasonable terms of surrender. They said, okay, you know what? We beat you. Here's what we think. You leave everybody alone. France can remain at what they call its natural borders, which includes things like 
parts of, of northern Italy and all of Belgium. And so, like, larger than the France that we know right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have all of that. You can remain French emperor. Just just cut it out. Just, like, cut it out already. I mean, there was other, there was other terms involved, obviously, but... It's still pretty reasonable. Part of what they were trying to accomplish here... Well, some of the parties were trying to accomplish was to leave a France that was strong enough that if Russia ever got out of hand, there was still somebody that could. I, I mean, this is a period where international politics is all about sort of spheres of influence, you know, and they're trying to to sort of divvy things up so that that everyone within a sphere is is able to sort of counterbalance everyone else. So there's no one party that's so powerful it can dominate the the region. Makes good sense. I, I mean, it, it wasn't ultimately all that effective. It kind of super led to World War One, but their hearts were in the right place. Yeah, I mean, there was there's there was no way of having a foresight of that that event. Yeah. So what, what did Napoleon say to this? He said no. He said no. I I, I still got this. I'm not Sweet taking your ass. stupid terms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's one of those things where it's kind of like, well, dude, you're beaten. Like, what are you doing? Take the terms. They're pretty good. This is Napoleon we're talking about. Yeah, he doesn't do terms. No. He was forced back further into France. There's uh, in February. There's something called the the Six Days Campaign, where he, he won a series of several battles over the course of uh, a few days, which was astounding uh, tactical victories. But didn't really amount to anything in the larger scheme of things, really. And by March of 1814, they had pushed close enough to Paris that the the um, uh, the leaders of Paris basically surrendered on his behalf. He told his his commander. You know, the, the army will follow me. And they said, no, they'll follow their marshals. Like, they don't, you know, they followed you, but they don't want to die. They know this is crazy. And so basically he was forced. Uh, first of all, he asked them for their terms that they were giving him before. And they said, no, no, <laughs> that's off the table now. <laughs> they asked for France to return to its 1791 borders, which is considerably smaller. It's much closer to what France is now, so no Belgium, uh, especially no Italy, especially would be the main points there. And so Napoleon said, "Okay, I am going to abdicate the throne, and for my successor, my son will take the throne. His very very young son. My son will take the throne with his mother, my wife, as his protector. So that that's how we're going to do this." And they said, "No." No, you're gonna you're gonna like for real abdicate here. Like there's there's gonna be none of this nonsense. Yeah. They said, tell you what, there's this little island off the coast of Italy called Elba. It's got about twelve thousand people. You can be emperor of that. We will pay you two million francs a year. And just stay there. Stop bothering us. They went and talked to the closest remaining relative to the old king of France, who would they they put him back on the throne, Louis uh, the Eighteenth. So there was still enough interest in reintroducing a monarchy from this coalition in the rest of Europe. Yes, that, that was still to... very much a priority for them. Yep. Now they did install him as a constitutional monarch, so not an absolute monarch anymore, because that ship had sailed in 1789. Oh yeah, they couldn't do that again. No, but they'd rather have a Bourbon on the throne in some form than. Another Bonaparte. They just, they were, they were so sick of that. They went to check up on Napoleon and he had gone to Elba. He had issued a bunch of decrees on like agricultural reform. He had gotten some iron mines 
working at like on, beyond on Elba on at like beyond the capacity they had ever been working at. He had formed a tiny army and a tiny navy, which just sounds adorable, actually. Yes. Okay. Quick sidebar. Mm-hmm. I uh, haven't read the book. I didn't see the original film, but I watched the more recent version of The Count of Monte Cristo. Mm-hmm. So I know, I know he ended up on Elbow, but I have to imagine the rest of that is largely fictional. Very much so. In that he organized... Uh, uh, well, I know, well, he did get off the island, right? Oh, that part. Yeah. See, what happened was he heard that he might be... He might, or they were thinking about sending him to another island. So he escaped Elba. He, he stowed away on a ship. Got back to mainland France. Louis XVIII heard about this, sent an army. When Napoleon saw the army coming, he walked out on his own and said, Here I am, your emperor. If you want to shoot me, shoot me. And they, they took up with him. They switched sides. They were like, you know what, Napoleon? Sure, let's do this thing. And an entire army division, the 5th Division, all just went, all right, yeah, we'll, we'll follow Napoleon. Okay, now. let's not breeze over that part. I didn't... So, I got the impression that he was, you know, an impressive man. Very. And definitely indicated to his followers that he had the best interests of France at heart. Mm-hmm. Was he really so charismatic as to single-handedly face down an entire army and say, Hey guys, roll with me, and have them actually do it? Yes. In a word, yes. Wow. If, if he had gone to Elba and lived out his days there, he would have already been an impressive man. Okay, if, uh, if I pissed a bunch of people off and my punishment was getting paid... Two million, what, two million? Two million francs a year. Two million francs a year to run my own island? Yep. That would be the best possible completion to my story. I'd be like, sweet, this is, this is boss. Yep. He decided not good enough. Not good enough for him. This began what was known as the Hundred Days, in which, over the course of about three months, Napoleon managed to gain 200,000 troops who were spontaneously switching sides. Now, the thing to remember is that the Bourbons... Like, Louis XVIII wasn't actually that popular, and he wasn't that good a ruler. And essentially, when he heard that the 5th Division had switched, he ran away. Wait, Louis the what? 18th. 18th? Yeah. There were 17 other Louis? Louis XVI was the last king, uh, last ruling king of, of France. And then the 17th he had a He had a son, Louis the Seventeenth, who was technically, like, uh, um, what's the term? Uh, king in exile. Okay. Uh, after, the, after the death of his he father. Was king of the French? Yes. Yeah. After the death of his father, but he was eventually executed as well. That's uh, La Dauphin from uh, Man in the Iron Mask. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Except there was no actual guy in the Iron Mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, he was, yeah, he was, he was killed. Um, Louis Eighteenth. I'm going to have to double check this one, but I believe was a cousin of Louis XVI. Either that or like a like a, a, a nephew or something like that. He wasn't a direct descendant, but because he was Louis as well, it makes him Louis XVIII when he was made king of the French in this constitutional monarchy. So he ran away. He ran away. And Napoleon kind of went, let's do this. At this point in time, something called the Congress of Vienna was happening, which was basically a meeting of all of these uh, Sixth Coalition nations going, what are we going to do with Europe now that Napoleon's gone? They're still meeting, and Napoleon shows back up, and they're like, oh, that guy, let's deal with this now. 
They get Wellington back out of Spain, and they go, you're leading the coalition army. You've heard of the Battle of Waterloo? Um, a couple of times, yes. That's one of those things where it's one of the few things you know about Napoleon. If you yeah. know anything about Napoleon, it's, there's the phrase, it's, it's his Waterloo, it's his... Here's what Waterloo was. Napoleon knew that the coalition wasn't going to tolerate him being back. He knew the people were meeting. He also knew that a lot of the troops had already gone home. I mean, he'd been on the island for like a year. So Waterloo is actually in, in um, Belgium, which is a very com- convenient place for uh, a muster if you're talking about a coalition between German troops and British troops who want to attack France. Belgium's a good place to start. Napoleon's tactics had always been, like, he'd always done well fighting on two fronts. He always done well, like, getting in the middle of things. So he decided our best shot is to take all of these men, drive a wedge up into Belgium, and get between the British troops and the, and the German troops before they can form a cohesive body. And hopefully by doing that, I can hold both at bay long enough to maintain a foothold. It was a Hail Mary. Absolutely was. If anyone could have pulled it off, it was Napoleon. Right. He didn't pull it off. So what was his mistake? I mean, he was he was quite outmanned. Like he was he was very overwhelmed. He was against two of the best commanders uh, of of the time, other than himself. Wellington was a was a, a genius, especially in pitched battle. Wellington was absolute rubbish when it came to things like sieges or like long campaigns. When it came to like, there's a fight, let's go do it. All over it, and then I've forgotten to make a note, and I forget the guy's the guy's name. But the Prussian commander was also incredibly good, and he was leading all of the the Germanic troops. Essentially, he couldn't stand up to both of them on either side of him. They hit him at the same time. After the defeat at Waterloo, eighteenth June, eighteen fifteen, he tried escaping back to Paris. Paris turned against him. They kind of said, uh, "Well, we gave you your shot, man." Like. We can't keep doing this. Like, we, we got to draw the line somewhere. Couldn't he just turn on that old Napoleon charm? I mean, after so many died at, Napo- at, at Waterloo, they weren't really having it anymore. Yeah. He thought maybe uh, a warrant went out for him dead or alive from the coalition. He thought maybe he'd go to America, which was a viable option at that point in time. Fresh start. Well, I mean, the War of 1812 was just finished there. They don't have any... They don't have any... Uh, particular allegiance to the British at this point in time in terms of, you know, extradition and whatnot. But eventually he ends up surrendering to the commander of a British ship and is taken captive by the British, who take him to the uh, island of uh, St. Helena in July. And he lives out the rest of his life there, sometimes treated relatively well, sometimes treated not so well. The last three three years of his life or so, his jailer was not exactly kind to him. Um, his health suffered immensely, and by the time they actually called for doctors for him, basically all they could do is palliative care. And uh, Napoleon died uh, May 5th, 1821. We're not entirely sure of what. Probably stomach cancer. Possibly poisoning. Mm. Probably didn't help that no one was taking care of him properly while he was sick, but rather leaving him in a very old, damp, drafty building. The stomach ulcers from the cancer probably wouldn't have helped his case if he was being poisoned, but he also was really fond of an almond-based drink, which almonds have 
natural levels of um, arsenic in them mm-hmm. um, and the amounts that he was drinking, possibly because he was so thirsty because of his stomach cancer and his ulcers were causing him to drink excessive amounts of this, this syrup. And at that amount, and also with an ulcer, which d- doesn't give you the natural protection of the stomach lining, could have led to a buildup in his system. We don't know. So what kind of prison was this exactly? I mean, essentially, it's a tiny island. Seventeen, it's it's thousands of kilometers off the coast of of Europe or of Africa. Sorry, and there was no way off. There were boats that came with supplies once in a while. They checked the boat very carefully when it left. Other than that, they kind of let him do what he wanted because what's he going to do? Swim. So was execution just out of style at that point like why would not why, why wouldn't they want to punish him in that way not that i condone it uh you know by yeah of course stretch. i mean i don't i don't have a definitive answer for that but if i were to speculate this is a man who walked out in front of an entire army division and said if you want to shoot me shoot me and they said never mind we're on your side now is that the kind of man you want to make into a martyr fair enough hey yeah that's the strategy you know or is that the kind of man that you want to put on an island and say, listen, we treated him well till the end of his days. Uh, what more do you want from us? I guess I'm just not used to, historically, people at that time having that kind of foresight. Execution seemed like their solution to many problems. This is less than 200 years ago. Well, that's the thing. Now we're getting into slightly more recent times, which is, yeah. which is kind of nice. Yeah. Well... I do want to talk a lot about the other kind of aspects of Napoleon. I was going to say Napoleon something, but just Napoleon in general. But uh, I think we're going to leave that for the next episode. So we'll talk about that next time. Sounds good. Although we managed to make it through the entire Napoleonic Wars in this episode, albeit by paying the price in episode length, there's still an immense amount of change and influence that came out of Napoleon's time ruling over France that we couldn't cover. Next time, we'll talk about some of the legal, social, and political changes that came out of the Napoleonic era. That episode will be up on December 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.